From American Public Media, this is Ideas from Aspen. Highlights from the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival. I'm Kai Rizdahl. One of the big topics of conversation up at Aspen this summer was... What the heck is going on with the economy? The financial crisis that began in the summer of 2007, that has accelerated a fundamental shift in the economic balance of power. So you get a room full of economists and financial historians together to discuss that shift, and you get a room full of ideas about what needs to be done. The key task of our time is to move behind an economic model where the creative talents of 30 or 35 percent are harnessed and utilized for economic gains. The true challenge of our time is to stoke the creative furnace that lies deep within every single individual. This hour, the American economy translated from Wall Street to your wallet. But first, this news. This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're bringing you some of the economic highlights from the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival. And Aspen may seem like an odd setting for a conversation about the economy. A mountain resort town with a year-round population of about 6,000 people and part-time residents known in great part for their incredible wealth. Even condos up in Aspen go for seven figures. So it's fair to ask, what does this place have to do with your economy? Well, just like the title of the festival says, it's all about the ideas, conversations about the global economic decline and how it relates to you, your investments, your job prospects, your ability to enter the housing market, but probably not the one in Aspen. Neil Ferguson is a professor of history at Harvard University and its business school. Joining him on the panel we're about to hear is Mort Zuckerman, the editor-in-chief of U.S. News and World Report. They spoke with David Gergen from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. First, Professor Ferguson explained where we find ourselves right now financially. Let me put this in some kind of perspective. I'm a financial historian by training, but I also teach a course at Harvard. The, The question I posed to my class last year was, have we arrived at the end point of, say, half a millennium of Western predominance? And is that one of these historical changes so huge that we just can't get our heads around it? My working assumption, I'll keep this brief, is that the financial crisis that began in the summer of 2007, that has accelerated a fundamental shift in the economic balance of power. Even before the crisis, Jim O'Neill and his team at Goldman Sachs were forecasting that China's gross domestic product would exceed that of the United States in 2027. The financial crisis unquestionably has hit the United States much harder than China. Their stimulus worked much better than ours. The first point I just want to put out there is it's hard to believe under these circumstances that the acceleration, the the shift, if you like, from west to east hasn't been speeded up uh, by this crisis. The second point is uh, of course, power is not just about GDP. It's not just about the economy. Uh, Power is also about the ability to project hard power through military means. And some people in Washington like to console themselves by saying, we can still do that way more, more than they can. Count their aircraft carriers, count ours. But one point that follows from the financial crisis, which is terribly important, is that by combating our crisis of private debt with an extraordinary expansion of public debt, we inevitably are going to reduce the resources available for national security in the years ahead. Because as a debt grows, so the interest payments you have to make on it grow, even if interest rates stay low. And on uh, current projections, the federal debt is going to be absorbing around 20%, a fifth of all the taxes you pay within just a few years. Uh, The item of discretionary federal expenditure most likely to be squeezed is, of course, defense. And there are lots of historic precedents for that. So I fear that the financial crisis doesn't just impact on the economy. It actually impacts on American power in the hardest sense. Third and penultimate point, the legitimacy of the American way of what Francis Fukuyama and others confidently in 1989 called liberal capitalism or capitalist democracy has been fundamentally called into question by this crisis. I've just come back from China, had a two-week trip there. The thing I heard most often was, you can't lecture us about the superiority of your system anymore. We don't need to learn anything from you about financial institutions and forget 
about democracy. We see where it's got you. We have lost an extraordinarily important component of power in this crisis, the power to pontificate, the power to talk about things like the Washington Consensus. Who now uses the phrase Washington Consensus with a straight face? So China is gaining. And of course, it has in the process gained a very important kind of leverage through what I've called Chimerica, as a huge source of capital financing the U.S. current account deficit. It now holds 10% of the entire federal debt in public hands. It's an important form of power. It's financial power. I think there is a way out for the United States. I don't think it's over. But it all hinges on whether you can re-energize the real mainsprings, mainsprings of American power. And those two things are innovation, technological innovation, and entrepreneurship. Those are the things that made the United States the greatest economy in the world. And the critical question is, can we revive those things in such a way that in the end, we grow our way out of this hole the way the United States grew its way out of the 1970s and, of course, out of the 1930s? Over to you, Mort. <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I don't know why I'm reminded of that wonderful distinction between an optimist and a pessimist. An optimist, they say, thinks this is the best of all possible worlds, and a pessimist fears he may be right. <laughs> now, uh, let me just say that uh, while I have been, frankly, pessimistic about public policy, I am much less pessimistic about the culture of America, its pragmatism, its entrepreneurialism, its flexibility, its adaptability, and I believe that is particularly true of the business world, the private sector of America. And the management culture that we have in business, I think, is really quite remarkable. It developed originally out of the vast distances that America represented to anybody in business, where you had to find a way to deal with a huge market of uh, many different varieties of people, and you had to develop a system for appealing to that larger market. Secondly, we did concentrate in terms of how we did business on contract and law rather than kinship and custom. And that has really made it much more rational a process for us. And we've also, I think, used numbers and statistics as a way of evaluating business decisions to a degree that is unparalleled in the rest of the world. So I think that there are certain very critical elements that the business community still maintains. I'm not saying it is perfect, um, but it still is, in my judgment, the, the activity that still attracts the talented people, the young people, to go into it. Um, we are, without question, in a decline at this stage of the game in the business world. Uh, but I would also point out to you that uh, if you look at the history of the United States over the last half dozen years, and I believe it will come back fairly soon, you think of the number of startups that we have, of small businesses that get started. That is a reflection of a, an entrepreneurial culture and a business culture that I think has often enabled those smaller companies to grow into medium-sized and larger companies. And just look at Apple, for example, where somebody went in and redid that whole company. Now, uh, what I'm saying is we, because of this culture, we are better suited to a rapidly changing, a knowledge-based kind of economy than almost any other country in the world. And I think this is going to suit us well, um, if not in the short run, um, when we get through this, and we will get through it, not without a great deal of cost, uh, but I think that will provide the basis for us to continue going forward. And there are now so many different places to go to for money to fund these new ideas that I think we will recover the energy that uh, we frankly have uh, lost in the last year or 18 months. But the real problem, I think, for the business world, and this may kill, um, everything that I'm saying, frankly, is in a sense implicit in what Neil was referring to. We really have, I think, some of the worst public policies in place today that, in my judgment, go directly against the long-term interests of the country. And there is a hostility to the very kinds of culture that I think uh, have made America the, the great country that it is uh, and was, particularly uh, uh, given the energy that the business world gives to the whole economy. And I think we have to find some way of dealing with that or else we can really do great damage to this country. Morning, I'm actually heartened. That's the most optimistic I've heard you in the past two years. <laughs> so let me, um, I want to come back, uh, Neil, to, uh, to the argument itself. And you've recently written something that was in, in foreign affairs that was quite interesting, and that is that contrary to conventional wisdom, 
uh, established major nations, especially empires, have collapsed much more quickly than anybody assumed. Uh, we thought the Roman Empire took hundreds of years. You make the argument that most empires have, have collapsed within a generation. Are we facing that kind of situation here where uh, if we do go into decline, it could happen much more rapidly than we think? I think many Americans, particularly many American politicians, console themselves that there may be a problem, but it's sort of a problem for 2030 or 2040, and therefore it can be kicked clear of the next election cycle. The point I tried to make in this essay in Foreign Affairs, Complexity and Collapse, is that in fact most empires collapse fast. Uh, They're complex systems, they exist on the edge of chaos, and it doesn't take terribly much to tip them over, and when they're tipped over, they fall apart really quickly. We saw it happen to the Soviet Union. So I give a whole bunch of examples to to back this uh, hypothesis up, but one of the the payoff lines is that if you really want to see when an empire is getting vulnerable is when the costs of servicing the debt exceed the costs of the defense budget. Uh, Now, that has not been the case, I think, at any point in, in, in U.S. history. It will be the case in the next five years. So for me, the nightmare is that the political class in this country with its two to four year time horizon thinks this is a problem, you know, whether it's Medicare or Social Security, think this is a problem for the next generation of politicians. Whereas I think this is a problem that is going to go live really soon. Mort, let me come back to you about two other drivers of, uh, of a nation and, and ask you where we are with them. Uh, one is uh, the, the Andy Grove argument we, we talked about just before we came out here, who's just written a piece saying, look, uh, Tom Friedman and others have been arguing Innovation, startup are really critical. But Grove's argument is our problem isn't startups. We still have a great number of startups. Our problem is scaling the startups uh, so that they, they create jobs here. What's happening is that we have startups that are taking, once, once they start growing, create the jobs elsewhere and take solar panels. We invented solar panels. The jobs are outside this country now. So the question is how, how do we deal with that? If a country doesn't have a core of jobs and people working, how do we in fact stay a great country? Now, there are ways of addressing those issues, and it requires public policy. For example, and these have been suggested, not that they have been adopted, one of the great advantages of of, of building uh, plants overseas is they really have organized all the land and all the permits and all the approvals that you need so that you can move very quickly to build the facilities you need. We have nothing like that in this country, and we should and could do that. Secondly, uh, I would add one other thing, and I, I must say this is the one that just drives me around the bend. Uh, We had 195,000 H-1B visas, as they were called, for people who are really talented and and well-educated to work in this country. They were reduced to 65,000 as a result of a particular, uh, shall we say, organized group of people uh, who were trying to protect their jobs. But intellectual capital, in my judgment, and implicit in what Neil is saying, is as important as financial capital. And we are sending people who, who get... I mean, almost a majority of the students who are in the hard sciences and get MAs and PhDs in the hard sciences are foreign students. We send them out of the country. We won't let them work in the country. They work for companies that compete with us and countries that compete with us. That's just public policy insanity. And that, that's why I think we, we do have a fundamental problem. It's a public policy problem more than a private business problem. That's Mort Zuckerman from U.S. News and World Report. Harvard professor Neil Ferguson joined him. David Gergen from CNN moderated the panel. So what's the economic fix for the U.S.? Every Great Reset has seen the way we house Americans and organize our city shift. It's all coming up on Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media.
This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. A lot of economists believe that we are in the middle of a fundamental transformation of the global economy, that the financial crisis and the worldwide recession have just changed the rules of the game. Developing countries will prosper. Established economies will suffer under huge debt loads and aging populations. The American economy is trying to keep up. There's been the stimulus package and some new rules for Wall Street. But are those changes the kind the U.S. needs? Richard Florida's most recent book is called The Great Reset. And at the Aspen Ideas Festival this summer, he spoke about the new economic engines the U.S. ought to develop. In a nutshell, our economy has changed dramatically. My my own hunch on this, and others may debate and argue, and, and that's always fun and interesting, my own hunch on this is this is the most dramatic and fundamental economic change in modern economic life. Now, I don't want to bore you with too many statistics, but I do want to give you a few which will enable you to understand the magnitude and scope of the transformation we have gone through. In the year 1900, more than 50% of Americans worked on farms. A growing number of us worked in factories. Less than 5% of us worked in the knowledge professional and what I call the creative industries. That science, technology, research, development, entrepreneurship, management, the professions, arts, media, entertainment, and design. By the year 1950, we had become a manufacturing economy. Less than 5% of us now worked in agriculture. More than 50% of us worked in or around the factory, the industrial economy. Less than 10% of us worked in the creative economy. Beginning in the year 1980, our economy begins to undergo this transformation. Between 1980 and today, the U.S. economy generated 20 million jobs in the creative sector of the economy. Science, technology, management, law, healthcare, arts, entertainment, media, and design. Today, more than a third of the workforce is employed in these fields. In some of our biggest cities and metros, it's more than 40%. Less than 10% of Americans work in direct production occupations. 22% of us work in blue-collar work broadly, which includes construction and transportation, moving and logistics. 1% of us work in agriculture. During the course of this economic crisis, the rate of unemployment in manufacturing, in in production work, hit 14%. In construction, hit 20%. And the knowledge and professional and creative jobs, it's yet to hit 5%. Over the course of the next decade, we will generate another 7.5 million jobs in the knowledge, professional, and creative sector of the economy. Those jobs already account for 50% of all wages and salaries paid. These jobs are the driving economic force of our time. And we have to understand their dynamics and how to harness them. Every single human being is creative. The key task of our time is to move behind an economic model where the creative talents of 30 or 35% are harnessed and utilized for economic gains, and those very inefficiently. The true challenge of our time is to stoke the creative furnace that lies deep within every single individual. See, I learned that in my previous studies of manufacturing. When I studied manufacturing firms in the United States and Europe and Japan, when I went to Japan and studied the Toyota factories, And the Toyota engineers told me in 1983, we're going to win. We're going to beat the West. Why? Because your model of management thinks the only creative people are the CEO, the MBA, and the research scientists. We know better. The real heart of our factory, our real innovation engine, is on the factory floor. It's by harnessing the knowledge and the intelligence and the creativity of the people who work here. Well, I could talk all day about the rise of the creative economy and how that happened and what we need to do to support it. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about just one other factor. You see, when you hear the rise of a knowledge and technology-driven economy, internet economy, information age, a technology-driven world, the first thing that people conclude is that, oh, that means geography isn't important anymore. With all this technology and wireless and iPhones and Blackberries and mobile devices, I taught at Carnegie Mellon for 20 years. Our motto was anytime any place, anywhere. The death of distance. Geography doesn't matter. Everybody, right, you saw the ads, everybody was going to sit by that hillside with their mobile device, typing in and telecommuting from wherever they want. The world is flat. 
In a flat world, 6 billion people can plug in and communicate and commute from wherever they are. You no longer have to emigrate to innovate. Community is fraying. Towns are falling apart. There's a massive exurban migration. Not so fast. For every force, there's a counterforce. Everything in society. So as there were certain tendencies in our economy that enabled low-wage, low-skill, low-cost activities from certain kinds of manufacturing to call center work to move away, there was another, and I would submit, much more powerful counterforce. Why can't people see it? Why don't we have a conversation about it? Why is that conversation only emerging now? The much more important counterforce was the role of inward movement, the role of geographic concentration and agglomeration. I submit to you, and I'd like you to reflect on this, that place and community, that geographic place, has become the central social and economic organizing mechanism of our time. That our geographic place, our communities, our cities, our metropolitan areas, our mega regions, have replaced the industrial corporation as the key mechanism of organizing our economic and social life, of matching people to jobs, my dad had one job for life from age 13 to age 65. The average American changes jobs once every three years. The average American under age 30 changes jobs once a year. How do we match people to work? We match people to work in a thick labor market in a city. Place has become the key social and economic organizing unit, and the person who figured this out a long, long time ago was Jane Jacobs. I had the opportunity to meet Jane several times before she died, and we spent a long time talking about her contribution. Most people remember her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, her invective against Robert Moses, top-down urban planning, and the destruction of great urban neighborhoods. I feel that book. My father's house was knocked down in Newark, New Jersey, to make room for a highway. When I asked Jane what she thought her most important contribution, she said, Richard, I think I figured something out that no one else thought about. This woman with not even a college degree, never mind a PhD, would never accept an honorary degree from a university. She said, Adam Smith had a really great theory. He called it the division of labor and efficiency. And with that theory, he said in his pin factory, his famous pin factory, you could go on and make stuff more efficiently and, 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 and drive costs down and more effectively and drive productivity up in a company. She said, that's a great theory of making things cheaper. She said, but the theory we really need is a theory of where new things come from. That doesn't come from a company. That comes from a city. A city is the place you can mix and match people, where talented and ambitious people come, not necessarily with college degrees. Many of our entrepreneurs are college dropouts. They come to a city to find others, even unwittingly, and lever their talents, create leverage all around themselves. That's what Silicon Valley is. That's what New York City is. That's what Nashville is for music. As that great economic theorist Jack White of the White Stripes said, when asked what makes a great music scene, he said, that's easy. He said, what happens in a great music scene is a bunch of musicians locate in a community, and they're competing like crazy against one another. They are competing for a new sound and a new look and a new fashion and a new image, and they're constantly combining and recombining themselves, mixing and matching and forming new bands, and then one of them takes off. It's the same thing that happens in Silicon Valley. Cities are incubators of innovation. They create a spatial division of labor. Diverse, open-minded cities are our key economic drivers. I summarize this in the book as the three Ts. Technology, talent, and tolerance. You need to have a technology leadership and great universities and great adoption of technology. You need to be a talent creator, a talent attractor, and a talent magnet. In Pittsburgh, when I lived there, I often said the greatest export of Pittsburgh wasn't steel, but the talented and creative people it sent elsewhere. But to be a talent magnet and a technology creator, you have to be a tolerant and open-minded and diverse place. You know, I have a student. She just finished her PhD. She finally figured this out. A tolerant and open-minded place where you can be yourself, where you can express yourself, which has uh, an active sports and recreation scene, an active music scene, where people have a free-flowing lifestyle. That's not just about having good restaurants and good shopping and having fun. 
that's creating the key signals that it's a place that you can plug into and make your career. And when she looked at the psychological data, she proved that in surveys of over 30 and 40,000 people. Places, and I've learned this the hard way as a dyed-in-the-wool urbanist, in our surveys with the Gallup organization, what we found is that a key element in the success of a place, in addition to its urban amenities and street-level culture and music scenes and art scenes, which are all important and all critically important and not frivolous, people rank those things, not just rich people, low-income people rank those things as important as good schools and safe streets. When we did our surveys of New Orleans, New Orleans residents had one of the highest levels of personal satisfaction in the United States. They thought their government was ineffective. They thought their schools stunk. They thought they had to deal with crime and safety issues. They thought their city had a level of artistic and cultural interaction, bars and taverns and music clubs that added tremendous amounts of life satisfaction, and their churches as well. Open-mindedness and diversity, natural beauty, these were all things that were critical to the life satisfaction of people. Now, I just want to take a couple more minutes and then open it for questions to talk about what I think is going to happen next in this great reset. What I think we're up against with all of this backgrounding that you've just heard, the rise of the creative economy, the importance of diversity, and the importance of place and community and city. We have built a powerful economic infrastructure. We have created the potential for productivity increases and technological innovation that people like my parents, my grandparents with no education, could have scantily even dreamed about in futuristic uh, projections. But of course, that's all broken down. We have unemployment rates that's bobbling in the mid-9%. The real unemployment rate is probably 15, 16, 17, 18%. And Dave Bing, the new mayor of Detroit, has said in the inner city of Detroit, he believes the real unemployment rate is 50%. We got unemployment rates of 25% or higher for people who work in construction, 15% of higher for blue-collar people, and it doesn't look like it's getting better. Our housing market is stuck in the mud, no matter how much money we throw at it. The Eurozone is in terrible shape, and anyone who even bothers, who has the stomach to look at our deficit numbers, uh, gets terrified. So what do we need to do? Our quick fixes didn't work. Our attempt to throw money at the problem and stimulate our economy out of it didn't work. Our monetary policy innovations didn't work either. Yes, they have stabilized and caused us to get past the worst. But they have improved the foundation for growth. Now, what do we need to do or think about to get out of this? We need to keep our eye on the ball. We need to build a real social, economic, and geographic underpinning that can move our economy forward. I learned about this in the Great Reset when I did the research. I learned three things that happened during these periods. During these, these aren't just depression periods or recession periods or crisis periods. These are periods when we reset our lives, when financial reality sets in, when millions and millions of people begin to behave differently. The first thing I learned are these are very long-term processes. Second thing I learned is that government spending is an important enabler, but it can't solve the problem. And then I learned something even more fundamental. What powers economic recovery over and above all of those is something no one ever talks about except a small clique of geographers. They call it the spatial fix. The spatial fix. It's not the technological fix that powers our way out of recession and depression. What they argue, it's the spatial fix. I'll make this real simple. It wasn't just New Deal spending that helped us get out of the Depression. It wasn't just World War II mobilization that helped us recover from the economic crisis. There was something that was more important than any of them, the rise of suburbia. The suburban way of life. When my dad sat in front of that house and said, Rich, we live on what I thought was a farm. This was a farm when I was a boy, and I couldn't even get here because nobody had a car. We live on a farm. That's the nature of the shift. The suburban way of life, the combination of houses and roads, spurred the demand for all of those products of the assembly line. It worked perfectly for the old order. It doesn't work perfectly anymore. We need a dramatic break with the housing energy auto complex. Why? 
Not because sprawl is a bad thing. Not because suburban houses are silly or tacky or people don't like them. That's all nonsense. Because if we're going to open up spending and create demand for the new industries that are going to power our future, if we're going to invest in new technology-based industries and new energy and personal and human development, skill development, where's that money going to come from? Why did Americans go into so much debt in the first place? We were massively over-consuming the fundamental goods of the old order, housing and energy and cars. The average American spends over 55% of their income on housing, cars, and energy. Add in education and health care, food, and what's left over. Herbert Hoover had a great phrase. You might not lurk Herbert Hoover. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Before a car could go into every garage, agriculture had to become effective, efficient, and cheap. Before we can build an economy of the future on creativity and knowledge and productivity, we've got to make housing and energy and cars cheap. And what the book The Great Reset talks about is how that is happening now. We're going to have to tilt the balance away from home ownership, and it's something I've been writing a great deal about. Home ownership was the fundamental economic driver of post-war prosperity. It was the major economic and social and geographic underpinning. It no longer powers growth. It puts people in the poor house. It distorts our economy. It deflects resources where they can be better used. We found in our research that already 36 million Americans rent, and more and more are doing so every day. In the most flexible and vibrant and innovative communities across this country, uh, our high point in home ownership was 70%. It's falling drastically as a result of the crisis. It's now down to about 66%. The Urban Land Institute predicts it'll be 62%. But in the most innovative communities in our country, whether that's Silicon Valley or LA and Entertainment or New York, 50 to 55% of people own their homes. We have to tilt back home ownership from where it was at its end in the less innovative, the stodgiest, the most economically depressed communities, 80% of people own their homes. We need to invest in an infrastructure of the future, not an infrastructure of the past. Every Great Reset has seen the way we house Americans and organize our city shift. We need to build an economy and a set of economic underpinnings. We need to take a set of public investments and invest them in the future. Richard Florida is the author of The Great Reset. He is a professor at the University of Toronto. Any great economic change brings debate about what investments governments should make. But what about changes on a more personal level? What about your investments in a recession? If you step back and just think about investing, right? Investing in reality is a very counterintuitive endeavor. What seems most obvious and most easy, most often eventually is wrong. Think back in 1999, right, when it became very, very apparent we all should own equities, we all should own tech, we all should own dot-coms. Every day they're going up, people are making a fortune, and guess what happened? It blew sky high. And think about, you know, in the, the latter days of, of 2008, the early days of 2009, you know, it couldn't have been a scarier time, right? We're talking about deflation, we're talking about depression, we're talking about global systemic failure in the financial system, on and on and on, and the market went up 70%. The markets translated. You're listening to Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media.
This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. The Aspen Ideas Festival is all about big thoughts, about taking advantage of the fresh mountain air to sit back and ponder, to talk about the things that really matter. Right up there on that list is your economy, your investments, your retirement savings, and your kids' college accounts. Since April of this year, the stock market has lost more than $2 trillion. It's been more downs than ups, really. So what's an investor to do? Megan McArdle, a frequent Marketplace contributor, is the business editor at The Atlantic Magazine. She moderated a panel at the festival about the future of investments. She was joined by Keith Banks, the president of U.S. Trust, also William Mayer, a senior partner at Park Avenue Equity Partners. Is the worst of it behind us? Have we actually crested the worst of the wave, or are there more shocks to come, do you think? I'd like to address this question to both of you, so I'll just start to my Sure, left. I'm happy to, to kick it off. I think the answer is um, we do believe the worst of it is behind us, both from an economic standpoint uh, as well as a market standpoint. Having said that, I would tell you that does not mean it's going to be um, you know, easy sledding from here. There's going to be, we think, still quite a bit of volatility, quite a bit of uncertainty, um, and there are going to be certainly days when one will feel very uncomfortable with what they're potentially seeing. But at at U.S. Trust, we do not subscribe to the double-dip thesis. We think that this year we'll see in the U.S. about 3% real growth, you know, call it 25 to 3.5, faster overseas, 4 to 5. If you just look back, there's just, there's no precedent for a double-dip when you've got the kind of fundamentals we're seeing now, you have to go back in the last 60 years, really, to the Volcker days when we were fighting, obviously, runaway inflation, and Chairman Volcker took interest rates up to 20%. So high-level answer is we think the worst is behind us and happy as we continue on to drill down into that for you. I guess he's the optimist. <laughs> I think the, uh, the answer is, of course, maybe and probably and, uh, of course, that's one of the, the issues we have in this environment. It is unprecedented. Nobody really knows how this is going to turn out. And you have the short-run view, and, you, of course, you have the longer-run view. But I think, essentially, for the next year or two, I generally agree. I think your estimates of growth are maybe a little high. And whether they're a little high or not, even at 3%, you'll have virtually no shrinkage in the unemployment rate. So as Alan Greenspan said, I, and I quite agree, uh, almost certainly going to remain above 9%. And the significance of that to the investing world is, of course, from a political standpoint, that's a real problem for people in Washington who want to get reelected and stay in power. And I think they'll have a terrible tendency to further uh, stimulate the economy. Uh, I'd like to pick on what you said, no double dip. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, sort of minus 1% to sort of plus 2.5%, okay, maybe zero. And it's a little, you know, does it really matter? No fast growth, no collapse. What about a Japan-style steady stagnation for a decade or so? Do either of you worry about that? Uh, You have to worry about it, but I don't see that as an outcome. If you look at the way... Japan handled their crisis and how slow they were to act and when they did act, the types of things they did. It's the antithesis of what happened here in the U.S., both from a monetary stimulus standpoint, a fiscal stimulus standpoint. You know, we we had, I think, fortunately, a, a head of the central bank who understood the risks and the risks were deflation you know, depression was, is a strong word, but that was the mindset. We had to stay as far away from that neighborhood as possible, and we acted extremely aggressively, I think appropriately. So worry, yeah. I mean, when you're during these inflection points, you always got to be concerned about the what-ifs. We don't see that. I would say, though, if you think about Europe, I think it's a different ballgame. I think they are flirting with the risk, given the way they're responding, or the lack thereof, a concern still about inflation, right, as opposed to deflation. And with the influence of Germany in the ECB, you know, and and they're kind of continuing to fight that old war, I think Europe, if they don't get a lot more aggressive in their response to this crisis, I think you could be looking at a Japan-like outcome there. Forty, forty-five years ago, my father, who was uh, an economist and a banker, and from Europe, said, just never forget, in Europe... They are still fighting the inflation of the 20s. 
and the United States, they're still fighting the depression of the 30s. And it has become part of the culture. And Europe will have a tendency to restrain, and the United States will have a tendency to inflate. And here we are 45 years later, and guess what? As Keith says, you look at Germany until very recently, a few months ago, Merkel was talking about we've got to have a balanced budget. And here, of course, you know, the kitchen sink and everything into a stimulus program. Some would say wisely, some would say maybe not terribly well-aimed, but let's get some stimulus into the system. If I had been king for a day, I would have done pretty much what we did in the United States because the train was seriously close to coming off the tracks. And I believe that the combination of Geithner, Bernanke, and Paulson really did pretty much what they had to do without a playbook. A lot of mistakes as opposed to what they're doing in Europe. So in the short run, this will help us. What I don't know is in the longer run when we're going to have to pay for this. There have been some increasing noises, certainly over the last two years, about the United States, the quality of our debt. We've issued an enormous amount of debt over the last two years. An enormous amount of that debt is going to have to be rolled over in the next two years um, at presumably higher interest rates than we borrowed it at. Do either of you worry about the credit quality with Moody's saying, well, you know, the AAA isn't forever? Are we always going to be the risk-free rate, or is there a risk that people are going to start worrying about our ability to pay back the amount of debt that we've taken on? And what does that mean, then, for investment strategy? Well, I worry about, you know, if you look at the, the deficits that we're running today, so we got up to around, in 2009, 10% of GDP, you know, reached only three times before that, once in the Civil War, World War I, and World War II, which actually was three times that number, right? But understandably why and for good reasons. Now, as we recover, you'll see that number come down. Just as tax revenues go, go up with recovery and activity and the, the kind of spending we're seeing now to stimulate the economy begins to wane, we think that over the current cycle, you could see debt to GDP drop down to maybe more like 5%, which you can argue is a sustainable level if GDP grows at a commensurate rate. What I worry about, which is further out there, but as we all know, further out there becomes here a lot sooner than we like to think, and that is if you look at baby boomers' continued age, you look at Social, social Security, you look at health care, we don't have a way to pay for that. I don't think it's something we've got to um, be overly focused on right now today in terms of our investment decision-making, but that is a big dynamic out there that could be very, very destabilizing. When you talk about debt and the euro, and I thought, well, okay, <clears throat> we're starting to have to pay the price here for the federal uh, deficit. And yet, what happened? Well, for some reason, everybody decided, okay, Greece. Greece is a problem. Well, Greece has been a problem. But something happened, some tipping point came, and all of a sudden, Greece. Okay, so Greece is part of the euro system, so the whole thing gets dragged down. And as you've heard the, the phrase, we turn out to be the largest pygmy in the room, right? That doesn't mean we're in good shape, but this gets to be one of the questions when you're talking about in, investing is relative to what? And so we have this deficit, and I, th I think it's pretty, pretty clear that if something doesn't happen, and, you know, it's been written, right? So sooner or later, if you don't deal with the issue of entitlement, entitlements as part of the budget, it's hard to make the math work in the long run. The euro, we talk about this being you know, the most attractive disaster on the block, and, and the euro has been giving us a lot of help on that for the last you know, six months. Do you worry about the risk that the euro is going to dissolve? And if it does dissolve, what does that mean for the investment outlook? In a much larger context, and the parallels aren't perfect, when we formed this country, okay, it took 50 years to straighten out some of this stuff. And we had a lot of problems with our currencies. And so I think that in a much larger, long-run context, Europe's not doing all that bad. However, having said that, you know, there's some real dangers. You have, as we have in the United States, parts of the country which are economically quite strong relative to others. So you have in Europe, of course, Germany and Greece, probably the two extremes, although Spain is in terrible shape as well. I don't think they have a choice but to keep the euro together. I mean, I cannot imagine a Europe without the euro. I don't know how they go back. 
What we're seeing right now are the challenges we knew would be there when you had the disparate types of economic scenarios that are playing across the Eurozone. As Bill said, it's, it's, it's as extreme as it can be, you know, from a Greece to a Germany. And, and the problem is when you have a single currency and, and a single set of policies and a one-size-fits-one when there are many. The day was coming. The day has arrived. I agree with Bill. I don't see it breaking apart. I don't think the members believe that's a good or positive outcome, nor would it be. I think they'll muddle through this. I think they'll get out the other end. And hopefully, you know, they'll learn some things in the process that as they think about during better days, the next challenging days that will come, how do they better prepare themselves for that eventuality? Talking about our own quasi-sovereigns, both of you spoke a little bit about the states, you know, the muni debt market. Is it a good buy now, or, or haven't people priced in adequately the fact that eventually California may have to, and Illinois, and New York, and increasingly other states may have to say, look, I, we can't do it. Our pension debt is too great, and our uh, resources to deal with the rest of it are, are too small. You know, we still think munis are a good place to be. What they're not now is the slam dunk. You go in there, you take, you know, the shotgun approach, and you just get exposure to that segment. Obviously, a lot of states have a lot of challenges that need to be worked through, some more extreme than others, but there are a lot of states that are still in very good shape. So I think, especially given the tax environment we're in and will be in, you know, we are still very much urging our clients at U.S. Trust to have exposure there, but you have to really go in on a security-by-security basis, uh, and if you do that, we still think it's a place that, you know, in an after-tax context, is a good place to be. I don't think it's very different from whether you're lending money to a corporation or an individual, and that is you have different kinds of municipal bonds, right? You have a general obligation, which means I trust you, and then you have, of course, revenue bonds, which are secured by by revenues that are associated with an asset, and most people who are lending, surprise, surprise, would rather lend to an entity which has a revenue stream associated with an asset rather than saying, here's your money and pay it back in however many years. I think in this particular environment, and of course this gets to the question of what kind of a a return you could get, uh, I think in this environment, buying 30-year California municipal bonds is probably not the best thing you could do. (laughs) You know, Buying a 9-month, 12-month, 18-month where you're going to be the first out and preferably secured by some, uh, some revenue stream as I said before, if you're going to go in that direction on an after-tax basis, municipal bonds of some kind do yield more than the taxable market at this point. So talking about returns a little bit, in my basically my whole lifetime, uh, as my old boss said, basically all you have to do to earn money is just basically like breathe and invest your paycheck. And as long as you did those two things, you would be making a really quite comfortable yield on a relatively small amount of savings. Do you see that being true in the future, or did we have an anomalous 20-year run that's now over? You don't know, uh, but, but that doesn't mean you don't try. You have three variables only, right? Your risk, okay? your liquidity, and your yield. And everything you do is some variation of uh, some combination of those three items. And so today, I think that what you do is you're obviously, all of us, are focusing a little bit more on the risk part of that than the yield part of it. If you step back and just think about investing, right? Investing in reality is a very counterintuitive endeavor. What seems most obvious and most easy, most often eventually is wrong. Think back in 1999, right, when it became very, very apparent we all should own equities, we all should own tech, we all should own dot-coms. Every day they're going up, people are making a fortune, and guess what happened? It blew sky high. And think about, you know, in the the latter days of of 2008, the early days of 2009, you know, it couldn't have been a scarier time, right? We're talking about deflation. We're talking about depression. We're talking about global systemic failure in the financial system, on and on and on. And the market went up 70%. If you step back and, you know, think about what Bill and I talked about, if we do get growth of 3% in the U.S. and 4 to 5 or whatever the number is of that order of magnitude, globally, and you think of how exposed U.S. companies are to not only the U.S. growth, obviously, but global, 
That's a very positive environment for what we think is the continuation of very dramatic profit growth. The question to ask yourself is, over the next five to ten years, do we think fixed income will be outperforming equities? My answer to that is no. Well, let's talk about this a little bit, because this is... This is what I, I've been thinking about. Um, equities have always been where you put your money, you know, good times and bad. Um, we've seen corporate profits start to rebound, and it still looks high to me. Have we seen the equity premium that we've historically gotten, 6 8% above what you get on bonds? Has that eroded? We think that earnings this year, we're going to see $80 from the S&P, give or take a couple of bucks. So I would argue you've seen, you know, you've seen this multiple contraction due to fear. I mean, the thing to remember at, at inflection points of cycles, fear and greed drive the day. In, in late 99, greed drove the day. And when, when, when fear and greed drive the day, you get a disconnect between fundamentals and valuation. They ultimately reconnect. So in the greed phase, like in 99, they reconnect in a very scary and ugly and violent fashion, and people lose a lot of money, right? Every, those last folks that got in that dot-com bubble, and the same thing is true at the bottom, right? So when we're seeing fear manifest itself, the point we're not seeing those earnings, to your point, at least as we see it, being fully reflected in the stock prices, which we think creates an opportunity, assuming the economy continues to grow and earnings growth sustains. Okay, so to have economic growth, uh, you have to have credit, right? So to have credit, somebody's got to be prepared to lend money and somebody has to borrow it. So we have an environment on a, on a, on a macro level in this country where we've tightened up the capital requirements for the banks, the denominator, right? We've told them you have to have less leverage, so we're going to reduce the numerator, so then you say to yourself, so, so how, how are you going to lend money? And then the borrower, if you, a lot of people here run companies, have their own companies. And uh, you're not going to make any kind of major capital commitment unless you have some sense of confidence of what the outlook is. And one of the problems we've had here for the past few years, there's no, there's no confidence as to what the, out, what the future looks like. And in the absence of that, we all tend to hold back and say, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll wait a little while. Because the whole, you know, one of the premises we, we, we try to go through is this whole business about, you know, risk, risk-adjusted returns and investments. And so, you know, I see, a, I see an environment where, frankly, I think we will have growth. Okay? Not, once again, but people are going to try to have this growth without aiding people. So I think the earnings will go up, and I frankly think the market is going to have some pretty good areas in which to invest. The $64 question, of course, which areas? Is it infrastructure? Is it tech? Is it consumer products? Is it service? Is it financials? You know, is it large cap? Is it small cap? You know, you get yourself a headache quite quickly when you try to go through those. The Atlantic's Megan McArdle moderated that panel. She was joined by William Mayer of Park Avenue Equity Partners and Keith Banks of U.S. Trust. You can hear more from their conversation by visiting the website for the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's aifestival.org. If you missed any part of this program or you would just like to hear it again, you can always download the podcast. Go to the iTunes podcast section and search for Ideas from Aspen. American Public Media's Ideas from Aspen is produced by Nancy Fargali with help from Fiona Ng, Julie Seipel, and Emily Bina. Technical direction from Stephen Colon, Charlton Thorpe, Kyle Sisko, and Zach Rose. Special thanks, of course, to the folks at the Aspen Institute. I'm Kai Rizdal. American Public Media. 